2021 is almost over and at the fix we decided to end the year with an experiment. We wanted to bring you a kind of overview of what we felt were the biggest stories in European media and beyond. My name is David Tverdoin and you are listening to the Media Insider podcast, a production of the Fix Media. This podcast is a collaboration with journalism.co.uk. Together with senior reporter Jacob Granger, we talk about what we learned about the newsroom's switch to work from home, we highlight some of the interesting subscriptions and membership success stories, and we also talk about the biggest stories in podcasting, audio, and how newsletters and the creator economy have shaped the media landscape. David, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and, you know, try this new experiment of uh, yours and ours. It's great to collaborate on this and we'll, we'll just see how it goes, won't we? How is work at the moment? What's the working situation like for you? You know, the past couple of weeks have been just like working on all kinds of listicles, like, you know, like the year end in podcasting, journalism, newsletters, and so on. So, and uh, preparing for holidays when this period, when you work like double shifts so that you can take two or three weeks off, I'm sure it's been somehow the same for you guys, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So you're, you're looking forward to starting the Christmas break, having some time off after what is a very long year. I believe because of the pandemic, the years just got longer. <laughs> somehow. I remember when I was doing this uh, listicle for my newsletter, like the biggest things in tech. And in January of this year, Twitter banned uh, Donald Trump. And when I was talking to people about that they were like oh th- that happened this year i thought it was like you know years ago like everyone was like oh this was like so long ago those articles are such a useful reminder about how much happens in a year and you look back and you think did that really happen how do you actually put those articles together do you sit there and actually just like save them at each time they come up or do you have to go digging back through your work and finding them Oh, I'm embarrassed to acknowledge this, but there's it's uh, depends on which topics are we talking about. So I cover media, tech, and audio, right? So media, technology, audio. I have the best knowledge of technology for some reason that sticks in in my mind. But for example, for media, I was looking at different uh, media websites all around the world. Ended up um, going through every story on media on Axios. <laughs> really? It was 57 pages of their archives and uh, it was super useful. It took super long. But actually, I, I have to give kudos to, to, to those guys because they have a nicely structured uh, archive page. I tried to do it with the New York Times, actually, the, the media section, but they just let me uh, see stories uh, till the middle of, middle of October, and that's it. You make such a good point. Like news websites historically do not have the best archiving system, and trying to find what you're looking for is usually a, a painful task. So, um, yeah, Axios clearly has has one of the best then from your experience. And not only Axios, actually, uh, newsletters in this regard. Your like my inbox has has been like super useful. So there are these daily, weekly newsletters I subscribe to. We, I'm, I'm sure you subscribe to the same newsletters I do, or, or, or maybe more of them. <laughs> but uh, and going through just the subject line and sometimes like clicking in, uh, that was like super useful uh, in in terms of creating all these listicles. And every year, 
every single reel, I, I think to myself, okay, like this year I'm going to do a listicle at the end of each month and it will get better in the end and I'll never do that. So we've kind of reached the second year where coronavirus has been a thing for the media industry. What do you feel has been the impact that coronavirus has had this year? What, what are some of the standouts for you? There has been this great report by the Reuters Institute for Study of Journalism, which uh, you guys covered pretty extensively also at journalism.co.uk. Ever mouthful, that one, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it is. It took me a while to get used to it. <laughs> Anyway, uh, work from home has been a constant topic from like throughout the whole year. Um, I've been looking at not only media but also technology companies, uh, how they've been trying to figure it out. And uh, surprise, surprise, they still haven't figured it out. How did you feel about this topic? You know, covering it uh, throughout the year. Yeah, I, I think the the number was quite interesting that the Reuters Institute came out with. 57% of news organizations still haven't figured out hybrid working despite most of us being thrust into it. It's um I think the key thing that's come out of it is just covering hybrid work, pros and cons basically. While it certainly forced the issue to improve and um, make processes more streamlined out with, you know, just doing things for the sake of doing them. It's also brought on a lot of other consequences to do with mental health, to do with uh, online abuse, to do with people feeling isolated in the newsroom. And um, all of the answers to these very complex questions are just still not very clear. That's that's kind of the thrust of it. The report by the Reuters Institute had a really great chart in it, uh, where they summarized like what are the you know gains and losses from remote and hybrid working. Obviously, uh, many of the newsroom said or newsroom leaders actually managers said uh, you know efficiency got better. For some reason, they actually said like employee well being got better. You know they were home with the families. You don't have to commute up and down, so that you know spares you some few hours. Well, that much is definitely true on a personal level for me because I'm more around my families and now I don't have to run to get the bus into Brighton so um yeah it's it's being late for work is not really a thing anymore <laughs> but what was surprising for me because this is not the first year we live in a digital world many uh, newsroom leaders and managers said the communication got like so much worse throughout uh, the pandemic uh, while you know uh, working at uh, this hybrid working condition and that was a bit surprising to me i mean surprising and not surprising surprising in in that that we're deep into the digital age and we still haven't figured out how to best communicate i'm sure you got this throughout the year like you send a message to someone and then they misunderstood how you meant the message you know they maybe seen a, an underlying uh, you know tone in there which you you didn't mean to put in there there's something about the written medium which just isn't optimized. The convenience point is an interesting one because in theory, working from home should be like this luxury, right? And people kind of see it this way. But if you're struggling, you kind of don't allow yourself to struggle in that sense. Like, I shouldn't be struggling. I get to work from home. I'm in the comfort of my four walls. But if you're finding it hard, it's kind of that stigma is still there. Yes, exactly. And actually, even like verse, uh, like the point which, you know, more of them uh, pointed out uh, got worse was creativity, which means not like creativity in the world of like, oh, I wouldn't come up with my own ideas, but uh, I, I would uh, actually attribute it together with like collaboration, like two people in the room, things go better. So I have like a partner, which I use, um, which like we are doing a project, a long-term project together. And 
when we met in person, like, oh, there were like ideas flowing. And then he was very opposed to the idea to, you know, go online and do this online. But we had to, because of the pandemic, we, we just couldn't meet. I mean, it's not the same, but I feel like we figured it out to a point, but there's like still something missing. And you kind of like have to like work a little bit more to understand what the other person is is trying to say. And also when you're at home and you're looking at your computer, like there are notifications, there's your phone, there's your family knocking on the door. Uh, there are the neighbors who, who sometimes doing noise and, and all these things you, you don't, uh, you know. It's a nightmare to record podcasts from home, isn't it? I mean, I've been sat here trying to record and somebody's mowing the lawn across the across the road or something like that. And it's um, comes with its hidden challenges, I would put it that way. You mentioned the, the Reuters digital news report. One of the things which I found very surprising about that was that, at least in the UK, trust has increased by about eight percentage points. That still means that it's languishing around 36%, which is really low trust towards the media. But um, at least in the UK, we've seen there's been potentially a lot of good reasons not to trust the news. Um, you think about the Martin Bashir scandal, you think about kind of the hello goodbye of GB news. Yet, for some reason, in COVID, people are still finding reasons to trust the news. There's been this renewed sense of mission, at least what we've seen. Um, so despite those kind of reasons not to trust the news, people are starting to kind of be won back, it seems. As, have you seen something similar or different? Yes, I think um, the digital news report from Reuters um, uh, highlighted this as well, uh, that the trust in, how do you call them, uh, these uh, legacy uh, media publication has uh, increased, uh, like people turn to them more and more. And uh, which was uh, not really like surprising, but on the other hand, like the previous years, you have seen people looking towards social media, and actually uh, there was this question uh, in in there uh, where they asked people in different countries what do they think is the biggest reason why misinformation, disinformation, hoaxes spread, and it was like social media. They were worried of social media, so I think that might be one of the factors, like why people turned more to media. Yeah. For me, it's like this renewed sense of mission has manifested in both legacy news organizations as well as new startups. So, and it's not specifically just around COVID either. I think, like, take the FT, for example, they've been on this really big, like, climate change drive their coverage around COP26. They, you'll know, they have this hard pave gate across the site. They um, took that down for almost two days to, to show off their climate journalism. And that's just born out of their desire to give access to this important topic. That's just kind of quite different. And it was quite an interesting experiment. When you mention climate change and climate reporting, I'm, I'm curious. It's been a big topic in the media reporting, what you do, what, what we do at The Fix. It's been a constant topic there, but I'm not sure how much of a topic it was in the circles outside of media. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, whether Do you feel there was a change in like how people see uh, climate change? Definitely the younger generation, like there's this like understanding, like younger people get this, like this is an issue. Well, they call this the Greta effect, right? Younger people um, are really resonating and coming to this topic because it seems to be just so much more important to their lives. This is something they've got to live with for the rest of their lives, right? In, in response, I think news organizations have created all these different parts of their operations are dedicated to climate journalism, right? Climate verticals, climate hubs, climate whatever. But I think what we're seeing now is that climate is penetrating all sorts of other industries and, and beats like, I don't know, health and tech and travel and what have you. So I think what we'll continue to see is 
kind of the blurring of the lines, more climate journalism actually entering into other beats. And that, for me, is the interesting development. Also, you guys have the job boards and like uh, newsrooms looking for a climate reporter or you know climate correspondent. I don't know if you have the stats for that, but I have seen it like all the time with open positions. Yeah, I mean, there's there's been all sorts of there's been all sorts of kind of industry first positions. I mean, this year we had uh, the first race correspondent hired in, in for the independent nadine white which was kind of a big move only a few months ago uh reach plc hired an, an online safety editor there's kind of been a lot of new interesting positions which which we'll keep an eye on but uh yeah specifically about the climate one it's one that i think news organizations can no longer ignore i, I spoke to someone at the times and sunday times about this and they kind of said there was a time when you'd never get a climate story on the front page of a newspaper but now that's absolutely possible you know the tide has really changed and it, it kind of follows the political world doesn't it our journalism when it's in focus in the political arena it, journalism will kind of follow suit naturally in response to that and because it's been in, in such you know high attention with with cop that's that's kind of why you're half seeing um the prominence of the subject i think but th- that's kind of one example of of kind of the mission sense coming to the fore the other one i don't know if you followed it in the uk was at least last year, how the Society of Editors was caught in this storm around saying that the UK industry was not bigoted or racist. And that led a number of people on the board of um, editors to to resign. One of those was Eleanor Mills, who worked for the Times and Sunday Times for about 20 years. And she went on to create her own new startup this year called Noon um, with diversity at its core. That was dedicated for women in midlife who were not just ignored from the mainstream media, but actually misserved. Is that the right word? Or not treated correctly by the mainstream media. So I think, again, this is an example that mission-led journalism really has been something we're seeing time and again um, at the at the core of new new revenue strategies, new projects, new, new, new publications entirely. And that for me is just the COVID's impact in, in a nutshell. I mean, when you're mentioning scandals in media, it, it has been a handful this year again. We, we don't have this in, in our notes, uh, but it just came to my mind. So so famously, this has there's been the issue of the build editor who was suspended after reporting from the New York Times, which is very curious uh, that, you know, a force outside of Europe caused a high-profile European editor of builds to finally resign after scandals have been uncovered also by German media. Uh, begs the question how how influential is getting the New York Times uh, within Europe? I think that's one of the definitely bigger topics uh, coming in not only this year but uh, the following years also we have seen the new york times gained 1 million international subscribers today are 8.3 million subscribers that they ended the year with when you look at uh, so so the streaming platform netflix they break out how many of those of their 200 million subscribers and are in which region new york times isn't doing that but i would love to see that how many of those subscribers uh, of that million are coming from Europe? Uh, that's because it's it's going to be you know a challenge for uh, the newsrooms over here. That, that's very interesting because in the UK people don't really pay for news content. I think about eight percent pay for news, whereas in the US it's like twenty one percent. So that move into Europe and there are a lot of high paying areas in Europe, of course. You know you, you look to Scandinavia, you look to Germany and elsewhere. So yeah. 
that's that's an interesting move. Um, it's off. It's it's the other way around for me in some ways because a lot of British news organisations look to appeal to the US crowd. To do it in reverse is kind of interesting to me. Uh, also, when you speak of of UK, um, it's so much different because you have the trusted, well-resourced BBC. Okay, well-resourced in terms of you know I'm looking at BBC from the point of view. From someone living in Central and Eastern Europe, where uh, you know the public media is uh, usually underfunded and not trusted that uh, that much, and the BBC has history and everything. Like, and anytime I speak to anyone from public media, they say, "Oh, we would love to do it like the BBC, but we just don't have the resources." So I get that there is a struggle for for news media in UK to uh, differentiate, but still, when you look at uh, so there there like the the Press Gazette does this 100k club. Uh, tracker, uh, FIPP does this uh, a, a quarterly global uh, subscription tracker, and, and actually after the US uh, websites like the the Times, Washington Post, uh, Wall Street Journal, in the top ten there are like three free uh, news media from uh, UK which are uh, top of the top in terms of like getting new subscribers. Just recently the the Guardian uh, I think um, hit this this big milestone. Uh, one million um, recurring uh, members. Um, they're calling their members, right? Not subscribers. Well, that's, yeah, because they've got a joint sort of dual model, haven't they, where they they can they can sign up for recurring um, donations or they can sign up for ongoing subscriptions or something along those lines. There's certainly a difference and it's not just one blanket approach. They're, they've got two different models in there. How have you kind of seen the subscription slash membership conversation change this year? What what else has piqued your interest? There's been a couple of things. Uh, I was thinking about this, like what, what has been like some of the biggest things that, that happened. I already mentioned that the New York Times and, you know, the number of international subscribers, The Guardian. And, and I think this year was the year when also uh, smaller newsrooms and as you said, like mission-driven uh, news outlets. I don't want to say they figured it out how to, uh, you know, lean on into uh, reader revenue because it's obviously it's hard. But nowadays you have like so much technology you can start with. So when you look five or ten years ago, you like those news outlets who wanted to start re- like and and rely uh, primarily on reader revenue they had to build their own technology stack and now it's been less in Europe I think and more in the US but uh, you have seen these uh, small newsrooms or like independent reporters and writers get around and just like start uh, something on Substack or Ghost or all these newsletter first platforms that have emerged and basically you can do that you can do uh, you can put uh, three four uh, writers together you start the Substack and you have the very basic tools at your disposal you can have a website uh, you can have it on your own domain uh, you can um, uh, send out newsletters you can have like multiple newsletters under one roof multiple writers um, you can start multiple podcasts under one roof and you don't need to pay anything to start and that has been one of the struggles before 
because if you wanted to do something which is paid, most of the tools were, you know, you had to pay from the get-go. And now you just like turn to these free platforms and start from there and you pay. I realize I'm making it sound like super easy, like everyone can do it. And like, obviously there is there is a problem with local news. There is a problem with, uh, you know, regional news. I'm just saying the tools, like uh, from the point of view, the technology tools got like much easier to be like much more accessible and and you have these resources the 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 membership puzzle project just ended after four years of run and you have like so many resources which they left there just you know for someone to pick it up and and start experimenting tell me what's your point because i'm i'm, I'm sounding like it's super easy i think the the other side of the conversation is really interesting that people who do have the tech and do have the resources can really make this work very well i think we've seen a much more sophisticated conversation around um, subscriptions and memberships with um two kind of examples come to mind one is from canada and the globe and mail who have this um ai powered model called sophie which can basically target readers who will pay and and ignore the ones who won't. So um, people who have a high propensity to pay ask to pay gate very early. People who they feel will never pay, they'll just won't even bother them. If it's unsuccessful, they'll shift to maybe ask them to sign up to a newsletter or something else. And this has been great for like uh, registrations, loyalty, conversion, visitor engagement, all increasing quite significantly. On the other end of that, uh, I looked to someone like the Daily Maverick in South Africa, again, very inspired by the membership media puzzle you just mentioned. And they've got this pay what you can model like a sliding scale where their readers can just chip in and pay whatever they can because in South Africa of course the ability to pay for news content is very varied some not everyone can pay basically the idea is there's a mission there at the heart of it and you and you support what you can um and so with the right tech with the right sort of resources like you mentioned with the right kind of mission in mind you can kind of make these models work and it's of course making it sound easier than it of course is there are examples good examples this year that uh memberships are 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 kind of working but i'm also wondering are you starting to see the subscription fatigue depends on where you look so there's this example uh, in the beginning of the year, uh, the CEO of Bloomberg said they want to end the year with 400,000 paying subscribers. So they have a thriving B2B business, uh, you know, with Bloomberg Terminal, but they wanted to also build their B2C segment with, you know, reach like basic subscribers or, or as, as you and I or maybe some more high-profile managers uh, than, than we are. But uh, they ended the year uh, with 350,000. And yes, they said, like, uh, the CEO, uh, I think, that, again, they, they, he talked to the Press Gazette and t- told them, um, yeah, we've, we have seen uh, a slow uh, in the news cycle. So the years before you had the start of the pandemic, now you can argue people are a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not... I don't want to say fed up with the pandemic because we are, uh, but it, it's just like um, when you feel it every day, it's just like everyone has a certain, you know, uh, it's it's enough for me. And uh, others have also like uh, not really uh, reached all, all their goals. I've spoken to some of the, you know, media execs in, in this region and uh, everyone set a bit 
I would say, a more ambitious goals in 2020 after seeing how it all accelerated. In 2020, the news cycle was uh, strong, like there was like big global news happening, the pandemic just started and, and everything. And I think 2021 was more about like, okay, so we're going back in the normal uh, in terms of like how people, how how much news uh, people actually, you know, uh, want to have. And also in 2021, when we were talking about like, uh, there is this I, I feel like uh, when we look at subscriptions and like uh, subscription fatigue in media we uh, like to look at uh, just from the point of view like media but people have also they're paying for Spotify they're paying for Netflix there's also like quite a big competition going over there like okay so now if disney plus enters your market obviously you have to have also disney plus if you have ki- children right like I've, I've, i didn't hear anyone with children saying like oh no i'm not going to pay for disney plus of course you are going to there's only so many subscriptions you want to see leave in your bank account right i mean after a while you start thinking i don't really need this anymore i think what your point kind of speaks to and i and i said earlier that ability and uh, not, not ability um, willingness to pay for news in the uk was really low and i think the conversation has changed to are you giving them a good reason to pay like if you're just going to put something there to pay it or don't access that kind of doesn't really work for people anymore you've got to give them a good reason to and i think the examples i mentioned with the globe and mail the daily maverick they're either using tools to give them a good reason to pay like serving up them more of what they want or there's something deeply, it's not a transaction. It's like an emotional purchase. It's not coming out of the subscriptions part of their budget. It's coming out of their goodwill part of their budget, if that makes sense. And I think that's that's very different. I totally um, agree with you. The topic of communicating what's your mission and what's, what's the reason uh, why people should pay for your articles, for your content, even though I don't like the word content, it's definitely became even more uh, i would say important in 2021 than before yeah but i think also subscriptions alone aren't enough anymore and diversification of revenue is is super super important i spoke earlier on about um the daily maverick and what they have is a really interesting model called 326 which basically means they've got three buckets in philanthropy commercial and reader revenue and within that they try to get two types of revenue within that so within philanthropy that might be philanthropic donations and grants within commercial that could be display advertising and syndicated content within reader revenue that could be you know your membership plus events for example and they actually think that's going to go up to about 10 in the next few years and and i've seen so many kind of interesting wacky kind of diversified revenue streams this year from e-courses at the economist to i think build have, have gone into tv news ft's events are doing really well uh nikkei in japan are doing webinars the daily maverick are doing like licensing out in in-house tools so i think there's a great variety of possibilities out there for the expertise within the newsroom what have you seen what have, what have been some of the really great examples of diversified revenue streams that you've covered one of the topics i was more more like trying to figure out uh, if if this is something that's happening only in my country or it's also happening in the wider industry has has been books actually like good old-fashioned books like uh, news publishers starting like a book business of their own basically turning their journalists and writers into book authors i spoken to thomas bella of denny ken who are like pretty who have been pretty successful they have been with uh, publishing books and they're in slovakia no they're in yeah in slovakia uh, an independent 
publisher they're like uh, i think at the moment they have like almost 70,000 uh, paying subscribers which for a 5 million country is not bad and what they've done they have uh, figured out what are the good books on the market which they can translate and approach their audience and on the other hand they gave the their journalists an opportunity uh to go and not just write a long form article but they told like okay are you passionate about the topic uh, and do you feel you can write it into a book just okay we will give you some time off or like you know we will give you like less uh, less work and you can work on on this book and that has been actually super successful for them uh, i think by by this date they have sold 100,000 books and diversification i think it was like 3% for for last year and it's going to be maybe double this year so that has been very well other publishers in Slovakia started to do this. I know in Denmark, other publishers are doing this. Um, I feel it's a little bit uh, more uh, difficult in the US where you have like these big publishing houses which go straight to the you know high-profile journalists and ask them to write a book about that. But uh, definitely, I, I think it makes sense. With books, it makes sense. So you have like good writers in house. You just like need to give them space and uh, figure out how you're going to basically sell the books or bundle the books with your subscriptions or like you know give the books uh, as as a present or or like a gift uh, if someone renews the subscription. So there are all kinds of ways you can do. And and subscriptions have, have like books. Sorry, have been just like this small part of this but um, i'm trying to follow this uh along so maybe in a year i'll tell you more <laughs> where, where this is heading super interesting i'd love to move on to like newsletters uh, because that's obviously tied into subscriptions as well i know that you've done a lot of um coverage on newsletters as well i think one of the key examples that i've seen is from quartz this year when i interviewed them they said about three quarters of their members were converting from newsletters and so as a result they've really tweaked their membership offering to offer more like exclusive newsletters this is a, a big big focal point for them plenty of other examples that we've seen like from the washington post i think they're up to about 50 different newsletters now <laughs> and all the ones we've covered quite a few new ones this year as well talk to me about newsletters uh, and kind of what you've what you've seen the exciting opportunities and um where you see this going so 2021 at, from from the point of view what i've seen was uh, the the point where many not only just like small and medium publishers but really big publishers who have been doing uh, newsletters for a while and you can argue they have figured it out by yet uh, they have revamped their strategies you have seen the new york times who has put a couple of their newsletters and made them like behind behind the paywall or made them uh, subscriber only they added new newsletters uh, for example bloomberg which i mentioned before they leaned into personality driven newsletters uh, you already mentioned the washington post what is what is interesting about the washington post they had this 202 newsletter uh, which they really made into a franchise which which is another uh, trend i think we've seen in it wasn't such a big trend i've only few publishers seen but i would love 
to see more publishers lean into in in the following years. Basically, when you create kind of like a brand within your brand and you lean more into that brand because you understand like, okay, it's like people are drawn to the big brand, but but maybe it makes sense for them to like really specify, you know, like these are the politic junkies or news junkies. Well, I mean, it's all, they're also driven by big personalities. And one of their most recent newsletters was called uh, How to Read This Chart. And it's written by Philip Bum who's a really, really um, popular national correspondent. I think getting those big names, those big ne- um, faces on the on the newsletter is, is, is again, a, um, at least a tactic I've seen deployed. And because it's almost like Substack, isn't it? You, you've, you follow the big names, the people, the writers that you care about. And I, I know you have a lot to say about Substack as well. Uh, yeah, before before I get to Substack and, and uh, the other platforms, I just want to uh, call out, uh, we, we had a really good piece at, on, on the fix about Funkemedien in, in Germany, who been doing like really well at, um, in terms of like converting unregistered readers to registered users and from registered users to paywall you uh, pay, uh, to you know actually subscribers like paying subscribers and it's it's, it's funny you have this um, almost like okay so if you have x number of uh, newsletter uh, subscribers you can almost you know, get to this number of how many percent of them you can translate into subscribers. And if you get that, you can kind of um, uh, better figure out your strategy in going forward. I think it's good to get these industry numbers. So uh, I think Funkemedian has said, they've said that they will, uh, within six months, they will um, uh, convert their uh, uh, subs- newsletter subscribers to you know, paying subscribers uh, in the amount of five to ten percent, which is super great, and it's actually a good segue to Substack, which also says when you're setting up a paid newsletter, you can count, you know, something around ten percent that you will, you know, convert those um, those fo- followers of your newsletter to to paying subscribers. But it's tricky. That's interesting because. Um... One Substack publication I've noticed in the UK, and they'd got this $1 million Substack uh, initiative, uh, the Substack Local, right, to help more independent writers start uh, sustainable enterprises. One of those was called The Mill uh, here in the UK, based in Greater Manchester. And just on that 10% thing, it's quite interesting. Last time I spoke to them this year, I think back in August, they had 1,000 paying members and 14,000 non-paying. So it's almost in that 10% kind of thing. It's, it's an interesting alignment. What they've been able to do from there is actually release sister titles in Sheffield and Liverpool of, of this year and last and, and back end of last year. So Substack is literally creating new um, media outlets. And these are run by, you know, genuine bona fide journalists. And, and that's an ex- exciting trend, really. So now we're getting to an interesting point where you're sitting in the UK and I'm, I'm here in Slovakia and Bratislava. And actually, from my point of view, Substack as a technology is great, but what is it not great in? So something like that, which you just mentioned, they, they've managed to do in, in the Manchester area, it wouldn't be possible in Slovakia because you cannot, like there is not a language option for Substack. So for, let's say, a group of journalists starting an independent outlet, they would rather turn to Ghost, uh, which you can uh, personalize more takes a little bit more, you know, uh, I would say technical skills to set it up, but you can have it in your own language. So yeah, Substack entered, they they have, uh, I think a month ago, they announced they're like going big in UK, they hired some people. I think there's a long way to, to get 
to all of the countries in in Europe. It's so diverse, you know, diverse in terms of language. You have the big markets: Germany, France, Spain, and and to enter those, they would have to translate all of Substack. I actually reached out three years ago to the founders of uh, co co-founders of Substack about this when I was setting up uh, a newsletter of my own, uh, and it was a point where they actually replied to you um, uh, in person. So it wasn't some you know assistant or someone at, at the help desk and I was asking like I would gladly translate this into my language like if you just you know send me everything and they were like oh it's somewhere down the pipeline but I I, I guess it got even pushed more down <laughs> not a priority then not a priority and even though the initiative you mentioned uh, I think one of the winners was also coming from uh, Romania I think I reached out to him he didn't get back to me but I was curious to ask because he wanted to do something locally and again it's it's tricky it's tricky when you're trying to le reach people in a local language and not everyone speaks English right because I imagine like if you're a Slovakian journalist on the ground and you want to do something like this you know your readers aren't likely to read english like like you can obviously speak and write in english so that that pre that presents a barrier to actually doing this kind of what you're saying when we're talking about uh, the, so so you can obviously write the articles or the blogs or, or record the, the audio in uh, in your language but uh, when it comes to billing and all these automated emails that come people's way you there's no way to translate them into your language so you end up sending people you know messages in english which you know they will that the, 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 they can't understand and if it's obviously important billing information that's no use to them so that's um right let's let's move on to audio david because um i know this is something you've covered extensively so much to talk about from apple to spotify twitter spaces facebook rooms give us give us the top lines what's what's really caught your eye this year Okay, so if I were to select only like three big topics in audio this year, it it uh, definitely number one the hype around Clubhouse and social live social audio. There is really good chart which anyone can uh, actually look at when you go at uh, trends.google.com and you enter Clubhouse and put it on worldwide. You will see like this big peak around February and then just like straight down. Yeah, you're gone. So they've uh, the clubhouse, the social social network, uh, which uh, said their audio first and live first. Um, uh, they actually gained four billion US dollars valuation this year, and there was a big hype in the beginning of the year. Um, everyone wanted to be involved in in clubhouse everyone wanted to speak there there was a you know a closed beta as it is called uh which meant that you only could enter if you got invited and it was only on ios which is interesting from the point of view of us that's okay because uh, more than half of the population has uh, iphones but when you look at uh, europe for example 80 percent of of people in europe have android phones so i think they introduced an android version all the way in april or, or mail uh, there has been a, a peak in in people's interest so people with androids uh, finally downloaded uh, the app but there was nothing happening and again uh, i think it was the verge uh, which documented that uh, not very successful at uh, driving you know advertisers to the platform which was one of the promises which i think is an overall thing we, we can maybe 
<laughs> address later if we have time that uh, this young generation of creators and not only writers and media is looking to to social networks and they're looking in the monetization options first so definitely the the hype of clubhouse it produced uh, facebook audio rooms a clone of clubhouse twitter spaces uh, from my point of view twitter spaces is doing the best um, in in terms of like i see it happening in my feed sometimes i'm interested they are being recorded so you can go in and 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 listen to to the recordings of of spaces linkedin actually announced at the time that they're going to do it it's nowhere to be seen so who knows it's always when there's an hype everyone is like very quick to say oh we're going to copy it and then it's very interesting to go in uh a couple of months later and look at like oh but you said you're going to do it where is it so so definitely live audio and the uh, second paid podcast, uh, you already mentioned Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, you know, uh, made these tools available for podcasters to, to, to have paid podcasts. And I wanted to say something the third, but I forgot. So maybe maybe you can help me out. <laughs> A version of this from NewsQuest here in the UK, who was experimenting very much with um, an app called Bytecast, where their reporters were sent out to record, edit and upload their own stories from the field, basically audio versions of what they were doing for exclusive content. Yet to see how that will pan out. Um, I think they need to do more work to kind of make it a bit more pristine. It was a bit rough around the edges when it came out. But um, certainly now that they're hiring a lot more multimedia reporters for for local news it's it's an interesting possibility but um what have you seen in the world of audio articles two approaches which i want to highlight is uh, the one uh, which been you know taken by the big newsrooms like Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, or Bloomberg was, uh, you know, um, using one of the text-to-speech uh, engines out there, uh, either from Amazon, Google, or, or someone else, and just like going in and um, making an audio version of all articles available. There is an interesting point. Uh, Wall Street Journal uh, actually published a blog a couple of months ago where they said, like, and, and they weren't the first who uh, highlighted this, but basically when you put an audio uh, article also uh, and couple it with your text article, amount of time, how much, like, how much time people spend on your website will increase like people will listen to those articles so that's an interesting factor in in terms of like how to deeper engage your audience and the second approach has been like again a uk-based uh, media like tortoise media or uh, the the danish zetland a couple of years back where they made their authors actually read the articles obviously you can do this only when you are not publishing you know 50 articles per day but uh, if you're just like uh, let's say a slow news startup or uh, a weekly magazine or you know um, something like that i really feel all the articles will be coming also to smaller websites uh, in the coming years the one to watch of course is axel springer who have um who want to really be leading the german speaking audio market by 2025 they've got this new audio unit to kind of um, create more audio products um assess that impact and capitalize on the business opportunities that are in there um they've invested a lot in like tech to speak text to speech technology you know actually bought out sort of audio producing companies so that that for me is one to watch in the in the years ahead axel springer in generally the the german media market has, has is quite evolved in this regard you got the site which uh, is is deep into podcasts also they have i think audio articles as well the spiegel as well you just mentioned uh, axel springer so uh 
there are some really good examples. So is that really ambitious to want to be leading the German-speaking market by 2025? Do you think that's really ambitious on Axel Springer's part? It's it's definitely ambitious, but I, I wouldn't say it's not, uh, you know, not... Uh, they, they can achieve it, uh, but it will depend on the strategies. I, I mean, we will see at this point, it's so far away. <laughs> Let's um kind of think about the last few topics here. We saw this go- Google phase-out of third-party cookies. Um, it's super interesting because you kind of have to consider this as a win for online privacy. Basically, on under this new flock model, uh, under these cohorts, basically, this will provide less specific data on you, the individual internet user. And so advertisers have got much less precise tools when it comes to targeting and measuring the performance of their ads, whether that's on a general news website or on Gumtree or wherever, wherever it is. It, it's worth saying that Google's own study on this in 2019 said that it could reduce um, ad revenue for news publishers by about 59%. So this this was, was really raising some alarm bells when, when it was announced. But um, actually what I'm hearing from, from news publishers is this is a good opportunity for, for revenue. Because if you take a, a company like News UK, which, has, which publishes The Sun, The Times and Sunday Times, TalkSport, these have largely logged in subscribed audiences. There's a lot of first party data there. Uh, what News UK have done is they've launched this thing called Nucleus, which will basically give them a way to directly um, work with advertisers to reach very specific audiences within their company. Um, this is obviously a very technical thing that they're doing. Not everyone can look at this, but kind of the bottom line is this is an opportunity for for for, for revenue. Um, this is going to give them an, a way to singularize their audience and um, work with uh, advertisers across the many different touch points of their organization and um, any kind of publication with a logged in first party data can can really take advantage of this situation do you, do you feel like it's turning around a couple of years back when you wanted to start a reader revenue business you know like set up subscriptions you had to you know know a couple of things be very technical and now we're talking about like you have to uh, and to have a successful uh, ad revenue business in the future, you have to have first party data and all these things around. Like it was easier to just put some Google ads on your website a couple of years back. And uh, I, I, I feel like uh, the, the subscriptions, subscription model is going to be possibly an easier one to start if you want to be successful. I think from people I've spoken to is that the previous model was not fit for purpose. And really, this has been welcomed. This has been on the horizon for a few years now, and they've had time to at least prepare for it. I think the the mood in, in, in the people I've spoken to is extremely positive, and they're welping, welcoming Flock, not not really worrying about it. And um, as long as people think about, you know, setting up the right uh, opportunities within their companies to make, take advantage of it to, you know, because I think loyalty comes into this conversation. Previously, advertisers were just casting a very wide net to a very online audience. Um, but now if you're working with news organizations who have very specific audiences, they know who they are, they know what they like, they can tailor their ads accordingly. That's an exciting opportunity, and I think um, this is this is a space to watch, certainly for myself, and I think anyone else listening in. We'll, we will be watching. Cool. So, final question for me then is: What matters in 2022? What are the things you're really going to keep your eye on? I think it's going to be the things we mainly talk about, uh, talked about already. So, 
how is going to work from home shape out, uh, how is it going to affect how newsrooms work together. We will definitely see more and more success stories in terms of subscriptions and memberships. I'm hoping to uncover some of the, you know, lesser known outlets in 2022. There has been a lot of talks. We already talked about the big players, but I think it's more important to also cover the the, the small and medium newsrooms who are like, you know, struggling to make it, but actually they're making <laughs> making it. Uh, and, and definitely paid newsletters and audio will be something that's, it will be a no-brainer, I think, in 2022. For, for myself, I mean, all of the above, of course, but I think we've seen a greater conversation on solidarity within journalism, not just mental health, but in terms of how to support marginalized reporters in the newsroom who are don't have a, don't have a good experience there um support for journalists who go through online abuse uh, and harassment and also sort of training and and support for journalists so i think that's going to be another thing i'll keep my eye on um this coming year just in terms of internal workflow internal support and internal procedures so um listen wish you all the best with it you, you know you can count on my interest in all your stories on the website uh david and um Thanks for thanks for doing this with me today. It's really been great to chat. Good luck to you as well. And uh, yeah, I'll be keeping an eye on journalism.co.uk. Did I, did I make it right? Thank you for listening. There were many other topics and stories we did not get to discuss in this podcast, but that was our time. Please find attached in the notes. There is a link to the article on The Fix, where we list all of the stories we talk about and a few extra ones. Thanks again to Jacob Granger and journalism.co.uk for working on this with us. If you're not yet following us, please find the Media Insider podcast in your favorite podcast app and go to thefix.media and subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you for listening.